Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Rishi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today's hashtag Jill Spin is, of course, an indictment because of what happened yesterday. And I'm going to be wearing this for several days, I think, in celebration. Yeah, you know, Jill, it's such a historic day, and I can't believe this is the third indictment of Donald Trump, and possibly not even the last. And, you know, we talk about this a lot about accountability and justice. How are you feeling um, now that Trump has been indicted for the third time? I know we're going to have on Michael Beschloss to talk about what this moment means in history, but what are your reactions less than 24 hours after the indictment was dropped? I'm both sad that we are at a point in our history where it's necessary to do this, But I'm greatly relieved that we have done it because I believe that accountability is essential to preserving our democracy. I believe that had Nixon been indicted rather than pardoned, maybe, just maybe, Donald Trump, even with his unique character traits, that maybe even he would have gotten the message that no one including a president or former president, is above the law. Maybe it would have changed his behavior as president. You know, I, I when I was younger in middle school, we learned a lot about Nixon and maybe not as much as I would have hoped for right now, but we, we learned about that presidency and, and just all of the things that he did to undermine um, our democracy. But now seeing Trump, I mean, for young people, I think it's just so stark and disturbing to know that this is kind of our current political moment. And I hope that everyone can look at what's happening right now and just remind themselves that none of this should be normal in our democracy. And I thought yesterday, Rachel Maddow, um, during her 8 p.m. special, had a great opening, which is, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to talk about the indictment, but we're going to talk about much more is what led to the moment that allowed supporters to support Trump? What led to the moment that allowed Donald Trump to do this? And I think that's going to be the big question that we're going to have to grapple with in our democracy. Um, and, you know, it, it's it just, we, we talk a lot about how history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But, you know, it, this really does seem like we're living in a new era, um, one that we've never lived in before. Well, before we go on to that, I want to pursue something you mentioned about what you uh-huh. learned uh, in grade school uh, about <laughs> Watergate, which only makes me feel like I'm definitely a different generation. Um, It makes me part of the history books. But what what do you think you learned about Watergate, about Nixon, uh, about what he did? And how does that influence how you feel about government? I mean, I think the big theme that I remember learning is just that we've never had a president who so willingly um, try to interfere in the democratic process. And that was, to me, not, not the reason why I got involved in politics, but I, I think a big reason for why um, a lot of people, myself, and also some of my friends who I talk to now in government, who say they want to try to make it better, that hopefully are being involved, we can hopefully do some good. And I think that's sort of the, as you know, we, we President Biden often talks about this, but you know, it really depends on future generations and young people to take things into their own hands and to make our government better. And that's where the progress comes. It's that upward trajectory that I think, you know, knowing that we've had hard moments in history, knowing that we've had moments like Watergate, but knowing what's possible. And I think, you know, I wish we had we didn't learn much about what happened after Watergate in terms of all of the reforms and the the good the uh, you know all of the legislation that was passed passed after that. But just viewing Watergate in a vacuum, I think it was really stark for for me at least to see that you know that type of presidency is just something that we never want to return to, and that's what I 
you know, hope that, you know, my being involved will hopefully bring us to a place where we will never go back to that time. And we're, hopefully now we're seeing Trump, we will never go back to a time when we have someone like Donald Trump holding the, the, the office of the presidency. Of course, what I see is that we've gone way, way beyond yeah, what yeah. Richard Nixon did. He, right. he did obstruct justice, but he did it by, first of all, telling people, well, you can always say you don't remember when you really do. Um, it was and the cover-up that was... It was the cover-up, yeah. but, yeah. but it was also, he remember, he did abuse his power as president by trying to use the yeah. CIA to yeah. stop the FBI from following the money trail because the burglars had $100 bills on them. And this gets sort of like a murder mystery kind of... <laughs> they had fresh new $100 bills in their pockets. Yeah. Those yeah. bills could have been traced back yeah. to a bank in Florida where the the Cuban American participants came from, and they had cashed a campaign check to get those hundred dollar bills. So they could have been traced directly back to Creep, the committee to reelect the president. And that would have been it. We would have seen right away immediately that this was not a regular burglary, that this was a political crime. So it was significant that he went to the director of the CIA and tried to get him to stop this. did succeed. And in fact, let me just mention President Ford, who pardoned him, was on the banking committee, and he interfered with the investigation. And that's why I campaigned against President Ford when I left government, um, because I saw what he had done as a congressman to interfere with our knowledge. And so I I hope someday that many of our current congressional will be held accountable in the same way. And he did lose the election in part because of pardoning Nixon. Um, he, he was a very strong candidate. He was very well liked and he would have been, you know, he just was very well liked and he was the incumbent. That always is an advantage. Um, but he lost and in a large part, it was because of his pardoning Nixon. People were angry that he wasn't held accountable. So well, I, let's let's dive more into our current moment in history and how we can better understand it by examining the past. And we have the perfect person to join us to do so. You've likely seen him on MSNBC or PBS or one of his read one of his many, many books on presidents. He won an Emmy and other awards too numerous to list. He is the amazing Michael Beschloss, NBC's presidential historian who has helped us make sense of current events. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Love being with both of you, admire both of you. And of course, the three of us are in Chicago. So uh, we're from Chicago. So we'll, we'll try not to get too inside baseball about the old Mayor Daley's uh, democratic machine. He was in power when I was born. And, you know, Jill and you are champions of, you know, Athenian democracy. All mm-hmm. I can remember in Chicago is, I think it was that maybe the city clerk or a a tax assessor who was going to jail for bribery. And just as he was going into jail, he supposedly told reporters, I really don't feel that I was guilty of bribery. I just always felt like a barber accepting a tip. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my education, not not yours. Yeah, Chicago politics is really crazy. But um, anyway, aside from sharing Chicago, you and I have been on a lot of shows talking about the parallels between Nixon and Trump. We've been through and, a lot together, Jill. Yeah, we have. And we both agree that Trump is worse than Nixon. 
Um, and I do want to get to the newest indictment, yesterday's indictment of Trump. And I want to ask you first, though, from a historical perspective, what other countries' leaders or our own other presidents come anywhere close to what Trump is accused of and which is laid out in pretty clear evidence in the newest indictment. Are there any American presidents or foreign leaders? Uh, there are foreign leaders, but uh, let, let's stick to America where we hope we have a slightly higher standard of ethics and law. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing remotely close to this. The closest, as you've said, Jill, and I'm afraid I'm probably gonna spend much of this podcast just nodding along and agreeing with Jill, <laughs> But uh, here's a case where when she was working for the Watergate special prosecutor, I know that she was one of those who felt that, you know, whatever happened, Nixon should still be indicted, maybe even as a sitting president, although there was a, there was a bad DOJ ruling that that couldn't happen, which for some reason is still in, uh, still in force today, which I think it should not be. And I think Jill and I agree on that. But the other thing was that if we're going to have any fairness and accountability in the system, you can't allow a president to turn a presidency into a free crime zone and then leave office and then be pardoned by your successor, as Nixon was with Ford. And that if that happened, I think we would agree, later presidents will figure, well, Nixon got away with this, and so can I. I think that was the message that Donald Trump took from Richard Nixon, who, as you both know, Trump got to know extremely well when they were living together up in New York. And we saw letters letter. that you have posted from uh, between the two of them, which I thought was amazing. And by the way, you should check your DMs because I sent you one about the posting that you did um, of myself and Richard Benvenista coming out of court. So check your DMs. <laughs> I, I, okay, I will, but... Uh, Anyone who has not seen it, there are these cool pictures of Jill oh and Richard God. Benvenista, whom I also know a little bit, and David Kennerly, the great photographer, on the steps of the same courthouse that we're talking about today, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It was not named after Barrett Prettyman in those days. It was not. That was famous in the 70s, 70s during the Watergate scandal, you know, people coming out of there. The one I remember, I remember you at the time, uh, and I also remember, you remember who uh, Charles Allen Wright, remember who he was? Of course. Many defense attorneys from the University of Texas. Well, I was a, a freshman in college when this was happening, Williams College in Massachusetts. We had one TV, and so like 150 kids watched <laughs> evening news every night. This is how long ago this was. Probably Cronkite, although Jill and I now work for NBC. And... The thing, it was great because you always got a reaction from the crowd. It's not like watching the news by yourself. And the one moment, one moment I remember is Charles Allen Wright, Nixon's brief, uh, was, was briefly Nixon's lawyer, coming out of the courthouse and in tones before reporters, President Nixon does not defy the law. And everyone in our room watching this, our 150 all laughed loudly and through things at the TV. Uh, for a while, it, 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 it took a while for me to get used to watching TV by myself and watching the news. Yeah. But it was true. He did not defy the law as opposed to, I mean, he, he, he broke the law. Right. But when ordered by the Supreme Court to comply, he did. 
He did. And so compared to Nixon, I think Jill and I never expected that in certain ways, we probably now sound like the Richard Nixon Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> but compared to Donald Trump, I was saying the other day, you know, Nixon is a lightning bug. Uh, Donald Trump is a, a lightning storm that can knock out the power grid. I mean, I always hear Jill talk about, I mean, the biggest difference between Trump and Nixon is that it seems like Trump, it seems like Nixon actually had a sense of shame um, and Trump really just doesn't. And there's no rock bottom. He had him. some sense of shame at times, which puts him way above Trump. Right. But the one thing I would still remember is, as Jill knows, uh, when Nixon gave those famous interviews with David Frost in the spring of 1977, uh, a little more than two years after a copping a, a pardon because Jill would have had him put in jail with the indictment that she and her colleagues would have written. Nixon says to David Frost, and I can tell you the words verbatim, Jill probably can too. Well, if the I won't do my bad Nixon impersonation. <laughs> if the president does it, that means it is not illegal. How dare he say that after everything he did and everything that could have sent him to prison? That's the lesson he took from this. He could say it because he was scot-free. And Trump learned it well. Right, yeah, right. Exactly. So I'm wondering, as we, as we talk about this moment in history right now in Trump, what specific actions of Trump do you think endanger our democracy the most? I know there's a lot, but if you had to pick a couple, what would they be? Uh, he has contempt for democracy, if not hatred for it. He does not understand what democracy is. He certainly places no value on foundation stones of democracy like rule of law and fair elections and you know feeling that this is a country where everyone comes together and exercises some self-restraint especially presidents and that victor has been evidenced most recently by the reportage which none of the trump people have denied which says that some of his advisors are very heavy at work uh, on how to make his second term if he's reelected next year into not his language, but mine, a presidential dictatorship, a president who doesn't operate according to the checks and balances that were uh, created by what was once a conservative hero, James Madison. So this is bordering on fascism, but the amazing thing is not only that he intends to do it, but he actually says it out loud. Many people who are fascists or authoritarians first get power, then once they have the power, they spring it on you. In Trump's case, I assume, and I'd like to hear what you guys think, that part of this is he is saying what he intends to do so that a lot of people will think, well, maybe he'll be president again. Maybe I should start censoring myself even in July of 2023, because he might be president, you know, in a little bit over a year, and he might be you know, exacting penalties for his enemies, might be putting people in jail. That's what authoritarians do. President Obama rightly said, when true democracy goes away, people get hurt. So this is what we've seen with the Mussolini. It's outside the American experience. That's really terrifying. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's such a I think accurate description of Trump, and and I I, I don't know. I mean, we talked about uh, you know cameras in the courtroom, and I know you tweeted yesterday about the importance of cameras being in the courtroom. Can you talk about that a little bit more, and and why our moment demands that? And even though you know that we don't see that often, 
Well, it's it's a matter of transparency and transparency that allows every American to see what could very well be the most important criminal trial in American history. Because if it fails, the result of this could be that we lose our democracy in 2025 if Donald Trump is elected, and especially if he gets a Republican Congress, which is possible. He's appointed one third of the Supreme Court. There are others who agree with him. There's a six to three majority. You know, you talk about guardrails and constraints. The wheels are coming off. Impeachment doesn't work. We have never convicted and thrown out a president. It is unlikely that that will ever happen based on our experience. So you tell me what constraints there are on a president, except for in this case, to bring him to account for bad things he did in office, chiefly trying to take away our democracy on the 6th of January, in my view. So let's let's talk about how we will hold him accountable. Um, and I want to also point out, we recently had Miles Taylor on talking about his right. new book. And he basically says the guardrails held in the first administration of Trump because he had appointees who held them, but that in a second administration, he will not hire any of those kind of people. He will make sure he gets the people who will let the guardrails come off. Oh That's yeah, he's, he's learned his lesson. His, the lesson he took away from January 6th was not that he did a bad thing, committed an offense against democracy, broke his oath, all of which I think the three of us would agree on. The lesson he took away was, I had too many people who were sticks in the mud telling me I should not do this. Next time I'm gonna to have total lackeys who when I say march on the Capitol or declare martial law or send troops into you know, a, a riot zone to restore order that may never be taken away, that person will say, yes, sir, not I'll resign if you do that, Mr. President. Right. Yeah. There's the danger, but let's let's look at the specific actions of Trump that uh, we know about so far, the things that are laid out, for example, in this indictment from yesterday for interference with the election. And let's talk about both from a historic perspective, a historical perspective, and just in terms of our current democracy, what do you think in there is the most significant threat to our democracy um, or anything else that you see in there that makes Trump worse than Nixon? Well, uh, here I am with one of the great legal minds of the world, uh, Jill, who also had the experience of Watergate and a lot of other things in life that have taught her an awful lot, not least the Department of the Army in the Carter period, right? So she's she's seen a lot, uh, not to mention seeing, you know, politics as it's practiced in Chicago and elsewhere. <laughs> but the point I would make is, as a non-lawyer, is if you acquit people after making charges of the kind that we're talking about in this indictment, defrauding the United States and the other charges in that indictment, if he is acquitted, that's a message to later presidents, this kind of stuff is okay. So let's say we make it through another Trump term and there's another president who does not win re-election and decides, I'll try what Trump tried on the 6th of January, but I'll do it better. I will use my presidential power to declare martial law. Mm -hmm. I will mobilize the military to make sure that the attack on the Capitol succeeds. 
that person's reference point will be the indictment of 2023 by Jack Smith against Donald Trump. If that indictment falls apart, that's what a later president is gonna do. And our chances for a free country are very clouded. On the other hand, if uh, the jury that rules in this case says the president broke the law and he has to pay, you know, that's a big message to every later president. And if that happens, you know, I think it's going to be hard for this administration to escape that uh, news story. What do you think President Biden should do in response? I know there was a lot of um, during the Nixon era, Ford's pardon of Nixon, um, you know, was was talked about a lot and is controversial. But what do you think President Biden should do if that moment comes? Should he pardon Donald Trump? Should he um, let Donald Trump go to jail? What should his response be? Well, I think, you know, number one, presidents don't consult. Even, even people like the three of us. So whatever advice we gave would be ignored and maybe maybe should be because presidents see things in a way that we do not. That having been said, I think that the, you know, the result of the Ford pardon was to say to, let, to later presidents, especially Donald Trump, but he wasn't the only one, you know, the American people will not have the stomach to see a president in prison. So the worst that can happen is you'll have to quit. Well, most people don't get to be president even for five and a half years as Nixon was. And he had a very nice retirement in San Clemente, made a lot of money in all sorts of ways, rather nice life in his later years. I actually met him once during those years and he was living in a rather substantial mansion in New New Jersey at the time. So if that's the worst punishment for committing crimes as president, you can have a lot of people as president who's going to be, who are going to be very willing to commit those crimes. What I'm saying is impeachment has not worked. The other constraints that the Constitution puts on a president are really extremely flimsy. And so therefore, we're going to have to hold the line here and say that future presidents cannot behave as Richard Nixon did and as even worse Donald Trump did. It'll be very interesting to see. I I agree with you completely about the need for accountability. And I believe that Ford's pardon is one of the messages that also got to Trump and said, well, I'll be safe no matter what. And that it was the wrong thing. Um, I appeared on a panel about the pardon and heard his son and um, the, oh gosh. Ford's son? Uh, the, he, his name begins with a B, who delivered the actual offer of pardon. Oh, Benton Becker. Ben, Benton Becker. Yeah, the lawyer. Uh, and it was a very touching description of why Ford acted. But no matter how emotionally touching it may be, I believe historically it was the wrong thing to do and has led us to where we are now. Do you agree yes, with that? I totally agree with that. And I also think that, yes, Ford was a quite religious and empathetic person. Uh, And I do not know that what I'm about to say was true, but Ford would not have been crazy to think that Nixon could do all sorts of things to Ford if he did not get his pardon. And there were threats made. That would be interesting. So my guess is that there may have been both the carrot and the stick, but that has not been proven by history. That's just a guess. What, What stick do you think he had? Uh, well, Ford would have known that Nixon for five and a half years had access to 
a lot of information about every decision that Ford had ever made. There was an FBI full field check on Ford when he was confirmed as vice president in December of 1973. As I said, I wanna label this as totally speculative. This is not based on anything we know, but I'm just saying that if you're looking at Gerald Ford, who's trying to make this decision, he had no reason to assume that if he denied Nixon the pardon that Nixon was so desperate for, he could not assume that Nixon being Nixon would not retaliate in some way. Interesting. Um, I, 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 of course, just opposed it because I felt that there was guilt. that needed I think to that's sufficient reason. Handled. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of the newest indictment, what stands out to you about yesterday's indictment and um, for election interference? And what do you think history will show us about this indictment? Well, I think what it does is, and, you know, Jack Smith, obviously, or at least I'm reading between the lines and you tell me if, if I sound right, given that this is much more your field of scholarship than mine, but the indictment looks as if it was structured for two reasons. Number one, uh, to be simple, you know, just one defendant, you know, very specific charges that can be pretty easily proven. Unlike a lot of other things, I'm sure that he was urged to go after and probably other people he was urged to go after. So this is something that was, I think, designed to be a pretty open and shut case and also a trial that is just begging to happen quickly and early so that it will be considerably for before the election next year, which is necessary for all sorts of other reasons. But the other thing is that I'm I'm assuming from everything I know about Jack Smith that this is a lover of democracy and a champion of democracy. And that he would agree that democracy was in mortal danger on the 6th of January and still will be if Donald Trump is reelected without any kind of sanction against him. So what I think the indictment really goes after almost in philosophical terms is to preserve those foundation stones of democracy that I was talking about. You know, you can't meddle with our elections. That's a sacred part of the American system. You can't tamper with the rule of law. No law against lying. If there were, a lot of presidents would be going to jail, but there is a law against defrauding the American people. So I think, you know, we were talking about guardrails. A lot of this is about guardrails and make, making sure that Donald Trump, if he should be reelected, or another president who has similar motives and interests uh, and who wants to be an authoritarian will not be able to do it. So I, I just wanna say in terms of lying, and of course the indictment does lay out very specifically that a president can lie to make it clear that he's not being indicted for any first amendment rights that he right, has. Right, which and, is a sticky area and- Yes. But, but also in Watergate, you know, when we named Nixon an unindicted co-conspirator, we gave a briefcase of evidence to the House Judiciary Committee right. used as a roadmap to impeachment. Right. And in the categories of information we provided were Nixon lies that weren't perjury because they were to the American public. Right. They were not under oath to a law enforcement agency or a grand jury. But we felt that lies to the public can be impeachable. Uh, and I still believe that. But 
it was not to be uh, because he was on. In, the, in, in the perfect world that you and I, the two of you and I would like to leave, uh, live in, I think that would be true. Uh, but, but right now, I'm just glad that Jack Smith has said, you know, what is the nut of this case? How do we save our democracy? And, you know, what are the worst things that he actually did on the 6th of January that either he or someone else might try again? And I, I'm surprised he didn't go beyond basically January 6th, that he cuts it off with that and didn't, because the lies continue and are dangerous even now. Um, but I think, Victor, why don't you go ahead and maybe ask more about what's happening today? Sure. Currently. Well, I actually have one follow-up question to our conversation, which is, I know, sure. Jill, yesterday you were on Joy Reid's show, and there was a lot of talk Indeed. about how Trump supporters will take in this indictment. And I thought Claire McCaskill had a really good idea, which is, you know, we have to get this out, or maybe it was... Jen, Jen Saki, or I think it was Claire McCaskill, actually, she basically said, you know, we should make this a required uh, book club reading activity. Yes. We should make right. this, you know, uh, we should put the, push this out as much as we can into the American public. But, you know, how will Trump supporters take this? And what will it take for us to reach that group? Do you think they'll even listen to it? Do you think even if they read it, will they see Trump for the type of person he is? No, we've got a problem that was not true during Watergate. And that is that there is this whole, you know, right-wing pro-Trump information subculture, right. which includes certain cable networks I will not name and certain media sites and certain famous figures who say all sorts of things in public that are not true, but they're having real traction. That was something that Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, suggested to President Nixon when he was it. in the White House. Pardon? <laughs> You well, said you weren't going to name it. You're I wasn't going to name the network. This is this is a uh, the oh, okay. oh, I, I did say Fox News. Sorry about that. All right, F F hyphen X, I guess. <laughs> uh, but Roger Ailes, when Nixon was president, went to Nixon and said, "You know, one problem you've got is there's this mainstream media, and they don't like you. We should begin with a conservative cable TV network, and we you should get donors to buy conservative papers, which some of them actually did." And that let, that's a direct causal arrow from that to what we see today. So when Jill was working so hard during the time of Watergate, you know, when Nixon was demonstrated finally, finally on the tapes to have obstructed justice with evidence and evidence of other crimes, you know, mainstream newspapers, including the Chicago Tribune, which was a Republican paper for most of its lifetime and others, said, you know, even Republicans who like Nixon and approve his record cannot approve of this kind of misbehavior. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, there's this bodyguard of lies that anything a Donald Trump does, this media subculture will bless it. And a lot of really well-intentioned, normally right-thinking people who watch and listen to it will think that, you know, if these people that we watch and listen to say it's okay, then it's okay with us, sadly. So I, I didn't mention any name, right? No, uh, no. Although it's sort of like the six co-conspirators in the indictment right. yeah. who are all right. unnamed, unnamed. But right. five of the six are clearly identified by their right. actions. And so I guess maybe one question, because we're running out of time is, so who's the sixth? Who's the political consultant? Well, it obviously is not Mark Felt, right? Uh, <laughs> this is a Watergate right. joke, you know, right. people would guess for decades who Deep Throat was, and it turned out to be the right. FBI. 
right. subdirector Mar Mark Felt. Yeah, it's not him, and it's probably not Epstein because he's also a lawyer, and this is yeah, well, as a political consultant. I think there's a degree of shamelessness in that crowd that you probably got 20 people who think that they will get prestige by implying that they're co-conspirator six. So yeah. uh, stay okay. tuned and find stay out maybe on a future podcast. Yes. It'll be interesting yes. to know. For sure. So well, thank you so much. Did, did you, do you have one last question, Victor, before we I, have I, We always like to end our podcast by asking our guests um, advice for future generations because it is an intergenerational podcast. And I think we're all seeing why history and history classes matter so much now. What is your advice to young people who want to enter the profession of Well, history? my advice would be, and this is in keeping with Jill's motto of you bring people down, but you also bring them up in the end. And here I'm going to do so, you know, uh, with great with great intense feeling. And that is anyone who looks at American history, there have been horrible atrocities. Slavery, you know, the internment of the Japanese Americans, you know, I could go on for an hour. But if you look at the trend line, look at the resilience of democracy. It really is the best system. In 1941, when the United States went to war against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, a lot of people said, you know, a democracy can never beat a dictatorship because the dictator can just turn on a dime and say what to do all the time. As it turns out, you know, dictators who answer to no one don't wind up making very good decisions and they wind up getting pretty isolated. That was certainly true of Hitler if you look at what happened to him in the end. So democracy is not only ethically and morally the best available form of a political system, but it also works the best. So just when the darkness seems to envelop our society, as I believe it did for much of the Trump years and to some extent thereafter because of some of the things he did, remember how resilient democracy is. And I think the last day in which we saw this indictment handed down is a terrific example of that. A lot of people were saying, is Trump gonna get away with this? Maybe he won't go to trial at all. None of these trials will be held before the election. He'll get elected president, he'll shut them all down. Well, I would say that because of what Jack Smith and a courageous grand jury have now done, anyone who might've been saying that 24 hours ago should be a little bit more optimistic that justice will be done. So I'd say to any young person, you know, study history, you know, not only for its own sake, but you'll feel a lot better. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for all that you do and providing us with much needed context about the moment that we're living in and giving us the context we need about the art. Right, right back at you and right back at you, Jill. Love Thanks, what you Michael. both do. Thank you, thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, we haven't been asked to sing any Chicago anthems or something. I thought you were going to see. I knew all we the can words let you do to that. my, kind, my kind of town much. or something like that. Yes. Next time. Uh, you don't want to hear my voice. That's the only thing. <laughs> Mine I will either. mouth the words. I would always love to hear your voice in any venue. Not Thank singing. you a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Thank Everyone you. be Bye. well. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye.